West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Hey, greetings, everyone, and welcome to the newest episode of the Geek at Arms podcast. It's a podcast about three guys who share a lot of geeky hobbies and also a love for the Lord our God. I'm James, and with me, as always, are my buds, Mike and Brian. Gentlemen, glad to be in studio with you once again. Yeah, glad likewise. To be here too. I mean, in studio, but still keeping appropriate social distancing. So, you know. Absolutely. And in our cases, the appropriate right. social distancing is about 600 plus miles each. I, I did the math. The closest that any of us are to one another is 1,400 miles. So we're okay. <laughs> I can't I mean, that I'm far, not, yeah. But, you know. I can take a few more steps back if that would make you more comfortable. I would, I would feel a little <laughs> more comfortable. Okay, I'll, I'll try to speak up into the microphone. Well, as I said, glad to be back with you. Glad you're all listening in. And so I say let's find out what's been happening in each of our little geeky lives. And let's jump into Geek Out. Who wants to go first? Uh, why don't I go first? All right. So uh, something happened in our D6 game, which uh, this never has happened to me in the history of my role-playing experience. And that is we had put a game on hiatus, and then it came out of hiatus again. I mean, is it, has that ever happened to any of you? Usually to me, hiatus is like, that's a polite word of yeah, for saying right. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know if I've ever had so much a hiatus as it just... Um, died. So it was one of those things that I, for the first couple of months that it was on hiatus, I was kind of hopeful. And then after a couple of months, I said, okay, let's, let's figure out what else we're going to do as a family. And we'll pick up, we'll pick up a role-playing game that we assess. But then suddenly my other players came up and said, you know, we're ready. There were some medical issues that were applied. So, you know, that makes sense. But then they were willing to re-engage afterwards. And so the COVID-19 thing happened in the middle of that. So we decided to give it a shot on Roll20. And we had a pretty steep learning curve, but generally positive experience. So we were we were very thrilled to be role-playing together, but apart again. And uh, the next thing that I've had going on in, in my little sphere of geekdom is um, my friend Sydney gave me another book called Children of Blood and Bone by Tony Eddiemi. So how many and has I, she given you so far or recommended to you? Uh, a lot. <laughs> and she's recommended more, and I just haven't gotten to them yet. But it's funny because my kids had actually been like, Dad, have you read, have you read Children of Blood and Bone yet? Have you read Children of Blood and Bone yet? And I'm like, I, I'm trying to get that to my reading list. And finally, it not only made it to my reading list, but I made it through. So that's a success. It's a fantasy world. And the general idea is that magic is hereditary, and it has been brutally and bloodily purged from this kingdom. And I'm kind of oversimplifying here, but it's been squelched to the point where the people who have the hereditary ability for magic just no longer can access it anymore. But there is one person who has come in possession of a relic that can bring magic back to those magical bloodlines. And so she is on a grand quest, acquires some friends, and I use the term friends liberally because there's one person on the quest who she pretty much is pretty pretty solidly uh, 
embittered towards, despite the fact the rest of the party is is there with her. But the protagonist is is a problematic character. She has her personality flaws, and those come into play during the during the course of of the story. It has a lot of familiar fantasy structures, and there are a lot of tropes, but the tropes are used well, and they serve as the reader's touch point during world building. So I would I would call this something with a lot of familiar structures, but those structures are used well, so it makes an interesting and compelling story. And one of the things that I think is refreshing about this book is that instead of having yet another all-white medieval pseudo-European setting, it's an entirely all non-white medieval fantasy. So, you know, there's we, we have some change up here. And it's if this book is something that you want to to pick up, I you know, I encourage people to to engage it, but it deals with subject matter that some of you probably will find or at least should find uncomfortable because the author comes at this from a perspective of this is written in my experience with the world uh, being from a minority uh, a minority race and dealing with some of the power structures that she's seen and experienced around her. And so this is not an allegory for race relations in the U.S., but it deals with some problematic power structures, deals with some problematic racial structures, and both the protagonist and antagonist are both dealing with those structures, sometimes in very unhelpful ways, and they do have touch points to real-world structures and methods of, say, trying to work within the system to try to make things better for everybody and doing those in very unhelpful ways. And so it's, it's an interesting perspective, and I'm very thankful to have had it so well written. I think I'm going to be adding this one to my Amazon list to read for later. And finally in my geek out uh, I went to PAX. Yes. Like long ago. Always look forward to your PAX reports, good sir. Yeah, this one this one was different because uh, not only because COVID-19 was just kind of on the periphery, and I'm actually really glad that PAX happened so early this year. A lot of people were really griping about the fact that it was happening at the end of February, which I don't know what February is like in either California or in Texas, but in New England, it is bitter. Like, it is just <laughs> the worst. Though if it was any later, then COVID-19 would have spread to the point where PAX would just have to have been canceled. Sony had already pulled out as it was, and people kind of rolled their eyes at it, but now it makes a lot more sense being what things are rather than what we thought that they might have been. But they were taking a lot of extra precautions. Uh, all of the controllers were wiped down and cleaned. Everybody was like, well, let's not shake hands. Let's do the elbow bump. Let's keep, you know, there wasn't social distancing at that point to the, the six-foot radius. But people were, people were mindful of how they were interacting with each other, which was good. And uh, what was also a really different experience for me is that my friend Will had gotten sick just before PAX, and so he could not make use out of his badge. And so he gave his Friday badge to my wife. Oh, very and cool. So, yeah. And it was one of those things. She usually doesn't do crowds. So I kind of wondered how that might go, since I don't know if you've seen pictures of PAX, but it's kind of crowded. Yeah, yeah, just a touch. <laughs> now, would this have been her first PAX? 
this was her very first pack. So cool. Yeah. And I think that she she's probably going to go again on Friday the next year. But she says, well, okay, so it's 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 busier than this on, on Saturdays? And I'm like, yeah, by about twice as much. And she's like, okay, I'm never doing Saturday. This is fine. <laughs> well, good. But, I'm glad that she was able to deal with the crowd that was there on Friday and not stress so much and have a good time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that was really funny about our different approaches to how we deal with the things that we want to enjoy, as soon as we made it into the expo hall, she's like, okay, how do we do this? And I'm like, well, what do you mean? We're just going to go and see what we what we want to look at. And so she was looking for a plan of attack. Like, how do we see all the things? And I'm like, well, you, you don't see all the things. There's too many things. You don't <laughs> this is Disney World. You pick what you want to do. Well, what do we pick? I don't know. I didn't have a plan for Friday. I usually just kind of wander into this and let my ADD be my guide. But we found <laughs> something that worked for both of us, and we, we got to see we got to see a lot of the floor spent most of the time in the expo hall. And there it became very apparent that the two of us have a lot different approaches to how do we enjoy these things. I also feel like we're getting a little insight on how you two approach sermon prep. You know, it's funny. No, no, I am. No, we're, no, no, ADP does not guide my sermon. That That would be an exegetical, theological, ecclesiological, Maybe even biological disaster. I mean, that would... <laughs> I I'm not going to say that I okay. I'm not going to say that I've never winged a sermon, but I've only done it when it's been absolute dire emergency in terms of Kaja gets up one morning, she gets ready for church, she's there at church, and all of a sudden her migraine kicks in full force and is flattened, and somebody needs to do something or just have some dead air for, you know, a good 20 minutes. No, no, do not wing your sermons. Always do <laughs> preparation. Always do your research. But uh, she she got very, very carried up in, in, in the moment and said, okay, let's do this. Let's participate into this. And there was a point where she says, okay, we should definitely do this. And what that do this was, was pay $30 and then you get a grab bag of three sets of polyhedral dice. You get to choose the bag. What's inside? We don't know. Maybe something oh, good. Oh, that's dangerous. And, and each time you buy a grab bag, you get to roll one of these magical D20s, maybe even roll one of your own D20s, and if it rolls a 20, then you get one of these additional deluxe sets of dice. And she said, we got to do this. And I said, we have enough dice. She's like, we're at PAX. This is fun. Like, I have too many dice. She's like, we'll go have these on the cost. And I said to her, you're the devil. (laughs) So at that point, there was no get thee behind me. There was, okay, let's do it. I rolled the die, yeah. And, I, hey, the dice we got were gorgeous. I'll admit that. Did you, um, did you roll a 20? I did not roll a 20. Darn. I did. Yeah, it's okay. I still would then have four sets of dice when I needed zero more sets of dice. <laughs> so, you know, that's okay. Well, now, here's a, here's a question you have to ask yourself, Mike. Does somebody else have dice? 
If so, you don't have enough yet. You know, you raise a very compelling mm-hmm. argument. Yeah. <laughs> and remember, this is us. There's no judgment here. And I, I'm willing to no, bet for the judgment here. <laughs> Oh, yeah, this is not on the Internet. There's judgment to be found on every corner of this thing. <laughs> well, not on this podcast anyway. Okay. That's good. No, safe I'm judging. Statement. Oh, dang, Nabbit. I'm feeling safe. Uh, we did walk away with another unplanned purchase, but this one was, you know, no question. There was no you're the devil in this one because there's a, a board game called We're Doomed, and it accommodates four to... Wow, it just blanked. Is it four to twelve? By, by the way, I didn't know that that was the name of the game on the show notes. I thought you were just making a general statement about the times. <laughs> I mean, it seems oddly fitting somehow. Uh, we're doomed has a cooperative, competitive model for four to ten players, and one of the things that's kind of bad about a lot of these up to ten player games is that they're either just you know, redos of Mafia or redos of Werewolf. And, you know, there's it's the same social bluffing mechanic. And if you've played one of those, you've kind of played them all. But this one was a really novel concept with the idea that you are representing various nations on this doomed world. The apocalypse is upon you, and you're all getting on a rocket ship to leave this doomed planet. I say you're all getting on the rocket, but that's not really guaranteed. What you have to do is work together to pitch in resources into a collective pot and build the rocket and then install additional seats into the rocket. So it's not a guarantee that the rocket's going to get built. It's not a guarantee that there will be enough seats in the rocket for the seats at the table. So you're also trying to acquire another resource called influence. So those who have the most influence are the ones who get the seats on the rocket first. And the game has a has a timer on it. It comes with its own wonderful, beautiful sand hourglass timer. So you sit there and flip this thing and the game begins and the timer does not stop ever. So it is fifteen minutes beginning to end. So it is a guaranteed fifteen minute playtime for up to ten people. And one of the brilliant things is that it works kind of better with 10 people than it does with four, which is an uncommon thing. Usually the more people you add, the clunkier it gets. This one, 10 people is really kind of a plus. So it was, it was a great playthrough at the, at the table at the con experience. So we definitely picked it up because it was a, a niche that we needed in our, in our game cabinet. <laughs> and... Finally, uh, there is one thing that I did at PAX that I really don't do, and that's back a Kickstarter. Because I've just been I've been bitten by Kickstarter too many times, and it's just not been a fun experience to say, oh, I sank my money in for this. Hooray. But I was playing through some games where these individuals had built NES games to run on cart in your NES. Or you could also download it on Steam, or they could even give you a ROM. And I played this game, and it was like I was playing Mega Man again. And, you know, you you might say that it's a bad thing that it's so derivative of Mega Man. And I've said, no, 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 that's that's not the way we're going. This has the same sort of jumping and shooting platforming combat, and this is this is a good thing. And so I backed that because I saw, I mean, I 
played through the actual real game. Only a couple of levels, but still enough to know that this is fun and we're going to be doing this. So I backed it for the ROM version. So once that is out, I will be jumping and shooting on, uh, on my system. I'm looking at the Kickstarter page for it. And yeah, it's definitely giving off a Mega Man vibe. I'm starting to feel a little bit like I'm nine, ten-year-old me sitting in front of my NES again. I still am the nine or ten-year-old me still playing. That <laughs> so many versions of that game, it's unreal. I just, like, do I really need this game for the Switch? Eh, let's do this. You know, I gotta say, I absolutely love that there are people out there who love this format, who love this style of game. And that they're still making games like this. I absolutely love that. What's really funny is that I was talking with one of the guys there, and I knew one of my friends made NES games still. And it was kind of a side hobby. And we've been friends since high school. And the guy said, oh, you know, I've, you know I, I know a lot of the people in this community. So what, what, what's your friend's name? I'm like, uh, Rob Bryant. And he's like, Oh, you're friends with Rob? Really? And I'm like, wow, Rob, I didn't know that you were such a big deal. I talked to him later. He's like, yeah, people really like this game. So apparently <laughs> apparently, my high school typing class friend was is a big deal in this community. This is kind of cool. And that'll wrap it up for my geek out. All right, who did we decide was going next? Me? You. Okay. Well, uh... Being quarantined hasn't really changed things for me all that much. Uh, I still watch way too much television, but I did that before. Uh, (laughs) Lately, I've been uh, working my way through the entirety of the MCU, starting from the very beginning with the first Iron Man, all the way through all the shows and all the movies. Uh, And I'm up to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. season, I think it's season five or four, uh, the one where they, they meet Ghost Rider. That's about, well, oh, it was the season yeah. just after that that we quit watching it. Well, I had quit watching right after the Ghost Rider arc. He was like, ah, I'm, I'm kind of over this, and I'm watching all these CW superhero shows. Like, turns out I stopped right at the wrong time, because the second half of that season is <laughs> fantastic. That was some of the best yeah. sci-fi I've seen in a while. Is that where they get taken to a simulation, or the one where they get taken to the future? Uh, the simulation. Into the, matrix. Yeah, the Matrix, that's right. Yeah, that one was good. It had some really decent moments. And they didn't back off the question of, is a transferred consciousness still attached to a soul? They asked that question. Most of the time when you get the storyline, you know, we're not talking about souls. We're not talking about spirituality. But they put Mac in there. And, you know, one of the foundational pieces of his, his character is that he is a religious person. And so wondering, you know, is, is the person who's still alive only in the Matrix still fully a person? Do they have a soul? Does the, the robot develop a soul because it, it thinks? And these more existential questions that usually get dodged, especially in something that's on network television, I was really, really happy to, to see explored. And it was just really good storytelling. Yeah, I love that arc. I was a little bit frustrated with it a few times, but I was, I, I mean, that's any arc. I think, mm-hmm. no, I think that one of the things that I was most frustrated about was would sometimes say, oh, and this is what they're going to do, this in the Matrix. They're not going to do that. They're not going to do something so predictable. Oh, they just did that. Oh, I hate it. <laughs> well, when you've got to write, you know, 13 hours of uh, entertainment, you're going to 
have to lean on those tropes. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, I can write 13 hours of content. Oh, wait, you said it had to be entertaining. <laughs> Never mind. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Five of it can't be Mega Man fan fiction, Mike. I mean, I can just pull out my old philosophy lecture notes. I mean, I have got, what is 16 I, times three? Yes, I, that's I, how many hours. I just said no Mega Man fanfic. <laughs> <laughs> he starts off every class with all right students let's listen to this song dun 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 just to set the tone what's sad is that when my ringtone has gone off and it at at work at the school and it is mega man that that is nearly enough to the truth I get on the train now and again. <laughs> and I thought I was dorky for my Legend of Zelda. I've got a uh, Star Wars Mandalorian ringtone, so. <laughs> <laughs> At least that's kind of current. Yeah. Anyway, uh, another show, again, sci-fi that I've been enjoying. Uh, my buddy Joel told me years ago to watch Steins Gate. Have you either of you heard of this one? It's an anime? No. Uh, I've watched one called The Gate, but not Steins Gate. Uh, is probably it Win Ben Steins Gate? Say, say that again. I said, "Is it Win Ben Steins Gate?" I think I've I think I've done that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's uh, Steins uh, semicolon Gate, and it's a uh, it's a show about uh, a self styled mad scientist who accidentally invents time travel, and his his character is just. So off the wall, all of the characters in it are really interesting, and I don't really want to say too much about it because the experience of learning what's going on is is part of the, the fun of it. But it was one of those things where somebody recommended this to me a long time ago, and I saw it on sale and I downloaded it, and it is just fantastic. I can't I can't recommend it highly enough. So where can um, we get this? Is it Crunchyroll, Amazon? I think it's available on Hulu, isn't it? It might be on Hulu. Um, I got it on sale from. Uh, Actually, the the Windows Store, um, so I have to watch it through the Windows Movies and DVDs app. But a few weeks ago, they had a lot of anime on sale. I got Your Name at the same time, but I haven't watched that one yet. That's such a good um, show. Doing a quick look, it is available uh, at least season one, the subbed version on Hulu. Um, the dubbing is is pretty good. The the voice acting is acceptable. I mean, it's not. Full Metal Alchemist good, but it's still very, very good. Um, the animation is really, really nice. Uh, the art is, is gorgeous. Um, it does have that tendency. I don't know what this is about some animes that they do the locust sound all the time. Have you noticed this? See, it's like, funny. I would likely not notice it, just how much, I, how much time I spent in Illinois and Missouri. <laughs> right. Well, I didn't notice it until I was about halfway through... Uh, Neon Genesis uh, Evangelion, and I suddenly realized there's like locusts in this show, and they're all the freaking time. And once I heard it, I couldn't unhear it. And it's like, oh my gosh, stop with the locusts! <laughs> so that's the you only know, downside, and they they don't do it as much as Evangelion did, but it is in some of the landscape. Uh, quick question on Hulu: I'm seeing Steins Gate and Steins Gate Zero. Is Steins Gate Zero just like season two or something? Uh, Steinsgate Zero, I think, is in the same universe, but not directly related to the same characters. I don't remember for sure. Okay. I uh, 
I got that one also, not being entirely know what it was. Oh no, yeah, I've got Steins Gate Zero, and then there's Steins Gate Load Region of Deja Vu, which, yeah, I don't know if they're how they're related, but there's uh, four four seasons of the original Steins Gate. Okay. Wow. So yeah, it's it's really good. And I uh, finally got that Tales from the Loop RPG. Oh, uh, yeah. I've been wanting to pick that up for a long time. I bought it one other time, but it turns out that I clicked on the wrong thing and I accidentally got the art book instead, oh, which no. is still good. Not a bad thing to have either. <laughs> right. You know, I, I don't regret that purchase, but it wasn't what I was aiming at. But I'm about mm, a little more than halfway through reading the book. Um, and when I'm done, I think I'm going to try and put a group together, probably on Roll20, because that's what we're all doing right now. We can't actually go to the same place at the moment. I should make mention that you guys probably already know this already, but uh, sometime in the next few months, we should be seeing the first season of the Tales from the Loop TV show on Amazon Prime. Yep. I think they're done with primary photography, um, or they were just, maybe they were just starting it. I don't remember. I do know that I pushed really hard to try and get the get on that show, but I don't, I think it was too late to, uh, to make a bid on the effect. We are going to be working hopefully on a show that everyone will recognize the title of, but I shouldn't say anything about it because NDAs and all that. But anyway, that one should be pretty exciting. And once it's public knowledge that we're working on it, then I'll go ahead and say it out loud. Cool. But that's assuming that, uh, the company survives the, the current state of the world. Yeah. I think it will, but it's fancy. So that's all I've got. Your turn, James. Well, it seems I have this trend that every other month I read a new trilogy of books all within one month. And mm -hmm. this month I read the Dragon Slayer trilogy by Duncan M. Hamilton. I mentioned this author in a prior podcast when I reviewed his The Society of the Sword trilogy. I think it was about a yeah, year ago. I actually ago, read so. that one recently. Oh, did you enjoy it? I enjoyed a lot about it, but I thought that the scenes didn't seem to be connected to one another mm -hmm. properly. Completely and that whole fair. Thing with the, in the last book with the mage was just like, why is this element of the book even here? Well, uh, this new trilogy is set in the exact same world, a mm -hmm. different country, and a little bit later. I think that uh, Society of the Sword is kind of like pseudo-fantasy Spain. And the one that uh, the Dragon Slayer trilogy takes place in is basically fantasy France. The three books called Dragon Slayer, Knight of the Silver Circle, and Servant of the Crown primarily follows Guillaume Val-Villevois, a swordsman who at one time was the best swordsman in the world, King's bodyguard, but after a personal tragedy, some bad luck and some bad choices, and a hard downfall, he spends his days drinking himself to a hopefully early grave. He's pulled back into service by the reappearance of, well, dragons. Hence the name, Dragon Slayer. <laughs> it's been a pretty fun read. Unlike a couple of moments in his previous trilogy, the narrative does flow very well. And I mostly enjoy Hamilton's writing style. And he also has a couple of moments where he really does a good job of blending medievalism into fantasy. One, okay. At one time, a character sends a student of his to fetch his lunch from an inn he favors. And his lunch order consists of a slice of pie and a mug of small beer. <laughs> and for the time frame that they're roughly envisioning for this fantasy novel, that is spot on. Exactly what they would be eating. 
like a slice of meat pie with other things thrown in and a mug of small beer, which is weak beer or beer with a very <laughs> low alcohol content. I was going um, to ask about that. Like small, wouldn't the size be dependent on the mug, <laughs> not the beer? In this case, small beer meaning a much lower alcohol content than normal. And it was something that was decently tasty. And you would drink during breakfast or lunch meals when you didn't want to get hammered at that point in the day and was infinitely safer to drink than water. Right. They didn't know why it was safer to drink, but funny people who drink beer are healthier. Yeah. Oh, be good well, for you. There were many times throughout history that they would drink that also as a source of nutrition. Yep. A couple of critiques that I would bring are that I feel that some of his characters, though he does a good job of telling who they are and what some of their history is, they kind of lack a bit of depth. I feel like that he also had a hard time <clears throat> properly building momentum. You get to these climaxes that have been building throughout several chapters and even sometimes throughout the whole book, and they feel a little wanting and, mm -hmm. a little, and a little disjointed. You probably felt the same way with the Society of the Sword books. I think yeah, he's got several places. I think he's gotten a little bit better, but still a ways to go. His prose is really good, though. Yeah, his prose is excellent. It's very easy to read. Probably one reason why I went ahead and I read the entire trilogy and why I would recommend it. Um, also, it is a trilogy. The third book just came out this last month. That's why I went ahead and started it. Next, for my geek out, as of this podcast, the season finale of Star Trek Picard has aired. And as a whole, I really enjoyed it. I'm glad it was made. Yeah. I think it was a worthy addition to Star Trek. Was it perfect? No, absolutely not. It was never going to be. But I think it was mostly respectful to its source and to the character Jean-Luc Picard. I enjoyed how they inserted Seven of Nine into the story arc. I loved seeing the characters of Riker and Troy again. I was worried that the episode was going to be nothing but a nostalgic cash grab. But the Riker family history that they infused throughout the episode gave the characters additional depth. Mike, I know you've watched a few episodes. Brian, I don't think you have, so I won't say anything more on that. Uh, but it really helped the narrative by helping establish trust between Picard and the character of Soji. Overall, I had a couple of nitpicky moments. I won't go into too much. But my only real gripe is the trend throughout the entire series of people being dismissive and sometimes just outright disrespectful towards Picard. Whether it's something minor, like a young ensign asking for Picard's name, and then when he gives it, says, oh, it's good to see you up and around, sir, to being told later that no one in the Federation would listen to him because, you know, he's, he's had a couple of failures. And well, at, at my also at the opening episode, kind of just flipped the bird to the Federation on galactic television. Yeah, a little bit. Um, <laughs> but then again, well, speaking about dismissive and disrespectful, think about the rather confrontational and just hostile tone that the reporter had with him in the first place. All this to say is when I was seeing this happen repeatedly, my first reaction was, excuse me, everyone, this is Captain Picard. Do you all not remember how many times he's literally saved the Federation? But then as yeah, I but that was on television last week, so this yeah. is what they do remember. Well, actually, you're hitting the nail pretty close there, Mike. Um, I remember that this is an attitude that's all too familiar in our time. At this point, Picard is in his 90s, and the elderly, even the best of them, are often overlooked, humored, and just outright dismissed. The pervasive attitude is that what they experienced 
is just not as important as what is going on at this moment. One could say, I fought in two world wars. I, I led men into battle and won victories. I was the head of my own business. I walked across every continent on this wonderful planet. Okay, Grandpa, settle down. That's really nice. <laughs> yep. And it's ageism. I, I, I survived a Cardassian interrogation. And let me tell you something, Sonny. There mm. are four lights. Yes, that, that's great, Grandpa. <laughs> Eat your replicated porridge. It's ageism. And ageism is apparently still alive in the 24th century. But despite this, our hero strives to prevail. After all, it's Star Trek, and it's shown that not even the Borg, Q, or a pair of horrible movies can stop Jean-Luc Picard. <laughs> I mean, Only one of the things I've that is... at least three. <laughs> Wait, hold on. Did I miss one? I was thinking of Insurrection and Nemesis. You honestly thought Generations was good? I had blocked Generations from my mind, Brian. Thank you very much. <laughs> I was wondering which one you'd forgotten. It was either Insurrection or Generations. <laughs> I don't know. I kind of give that one a pass because I just, I don't know. It didn't feel like a full Next Generation movie. I don't know. It's so weird. I just, I, I try yeah. not to think about it. So, <laughs> but now I have, so... Thanks I'm sorry. a lot, dude. I'm not sorry. You're not sorry at all. You're not. <laughs> Neither am I. I'm just a spectator in this part. <laughs> I do have to say that I was thrilled in the first episode. I I'd watched The Mandalorian wanting to see Space Boston, and then first episode of Picard, I got Space Boston. And that was amazing. That was great. So, you know, thank you. <laughs> so just out of my own curiosity, what did you think of the two Romulans living with Picard? I mean, I thought that they were delightful additions to the cast. I thought that it was it was a surprise to me to see that this was the shift. But I'm interested in their characters. I think that they're great. They can tell him off when he needs to be told. But they obviously have a lot of respect for him and are just interesting characters as it is and know how to handle a phaser if need be. Mm -hmm. Well, see, I, I thought this was a dramatic show, but suddenly I'm imagining a sitcom from the 70s. <laughs> Oh, we really need to write this. Like, like get me, get me a treatment. Let's see what we can do. But I mean, there were moments that were unintentionally comedic for our family. Like when they, you know, we have the young woman who was saying to Jean Luc Picard, "Like, I don't know. I just thought of you and knew that I would feel safe here." And I'm like, yeah, and Patrick Stewart's presence, I would, I would feel safe too. Yeah, I think he just has that effect on people. No, that's right. Mm -hmm. I'm feeling that. It's, that voice, it's, it's the voice of his and his delivery. It's like a warm blanket. Yeah. So anyway, that's going to wrap up my geek out. And that will lead us to... Wait, the, wait, oh, wait. Oh, I have no. a pop quiz. Yes! Boom! <laughs> All right. All right. What was your worst bait and switch experience? I mean, mine involves Amway, so... <laughs> I mean, are you talking media or all together? Like we thought something uh, was, was going to be really good and turn out to be crummy, or well, they, somebody presented uh, you not with so much, Not so much. It you thought it was going to be good and it turned out to be bad, but you were expecting one kind of thing and it turned out to be something entirely different. Like for me, it was when I went to see the movie Bridge to Terabithia. And based on all the advertisements, I went in expecting something like the Spiderwick Chronicles, but what I got was My Girl. 
And that was <laughs> not what I went to the theater for that day. Yeah, I went in thinking I was going to see something more akin to the Chronicles of Narnia, something mm-hmm. lightweight and fun. And what I got was a hole in my heart. Right. <laughs> okay. I've got one for you, but this was entirely, this one was on me. Like, I did not do my research. I didn't even read the back of the cover. This was back in high school. My friend Marlene and I decided that what we really wanted to do was go, what we wanted to go to the video store and get a horror flick. So we, we went and we got, I mean, it was even in the title that it was a horror show. So we picked it up. We it in. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. What movie was this? You know which one it's going to be. Brian's figured out it was the Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> that, was, that was not what we were expecting. <laughs> ah, that's funny. So, James, what have you got? If only you could go through a time warp and, and warn yourself about what happened. Oh, I don't think it would have changed a thing. <laughs> hmm. For me, um, it wasn't so much a bait and switch as a the only one that's coming to my mind is what I would call a narrow miss. I really enjoyed the 2009 reimaging of Star Trek from J.J. Abrams. Yeah. And... When I read that they were going to be making a third-person action-adventure game based on it in the same uh, platform as Mass Effect and Uncharted, I got really excited. Because when you think Star Trek, good Star Trek video games don't usually end up being in the same sentence. Um, (laughs) Quantum torpedoes away! (laughs) Exactly. I mean, there have been some entertaining ones, like the the four PC only Star Trek Armada. It was okay. It was enjoyable, but uh, action adventure games, yeah, no. Anyway, so I was really excited that it was going to be released in 2013. I, I was ready to go out and buy it the day it released for the Xbox 360. I'd watched trailers. I'd seen screenshots. I mean, I think they've taken one of my favorite game series, Mass Effect, and they're putting it in the Star Trek universe. Oh, yeah, I'm all over this. How'd that actually go? Well, I decided to actually wait until the weekend after it came out to go pick it up because I wanted to see early reviews. Early reviews tanked it. It sold really poor. It was out of 10. It was getting like from different video game review magazines and websites. It was getting like 42 Five, four, three, and so on. Yeah. See, that's Um, not even such an atrocity that you can pick it up and enjoy the awful spectacle. One person said that the the lip-sync dialogue was horrible, that sometimes the camera angles and the way you would try to direct your character, it looked like a bad blooper reel. And even the parts that did work, it was just just a generic third-person shooter. And that broke my heart. Did you ever pick up the game? Never. Not even when it was available <laughs> online and on sale for like five or ten bucks. I'm like, no, because I don't want to go in this thinking like, well, maybe I'll get some enjoyment out of it. And then just being frustrated by it and angry all over again. I just decided I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to stay away from it. and I think I'll be happier. So that's my closest that I can think of right now. Bait and switch moment. <laughs> well, 
then I think that that will lead us to the first film in our next film club series. And we had quite a bit of discussion about what we wanted the next film club series to be. We had discussed uh, historical fiction, noir films, and somehow we ended up on superhero movies that weren't a part of the big two, DC and Marvel. Some less well-known superhero movies. And uh, as we were throwing in our options about which ones we wanted included on that list, one that all three of us agreed upon quickly was the 1999 movie Mystery Men. And I can remember seeing this from the theaters, and I loved it. Now, it has been a long, long time since I've seen it. The last time I saw it was actually on VHS because I had it on VHS. So that should tell you how long it's been since I've seen it. I watched it recently, and I went into it with a pair of rose-colored glasses, thinking like, yeah, this is going to be good. And uh, for the most part, all right, okay. But um, before I go any deeper than that, let's, uh, let's jump into it. Well, I would rate this movie nostalgic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to agree with you on that. I mean, yeah. if, you, if you've got fond memories, maybe give it another watch. But remember, it's a product of its times, and it was not really fantastic even in its time. Mm-hmm. It number four at the box office. It actually performed it really? pretty well. It did. It really did. Yeah. I think one reason for that is because it's just so different than anything else that was out at the time. Well, we also had a cast that really, I mean, we had some names that were very popular back then. Ben Stiller was, I don't know if this was his prime. Ben Stiller prime. was huge at that point. Yeah, he was really huge. And you had other really <clears throat> respected comedians as well. You had Jeanine Garofalo, Hank Azaria. Oh, yeah. Greg Kinnear was also pretty popular at the time. Eddie Izzard. Paul Rubens. What the hey? Uh, how... <laughs> yeah, he, he's right there. He's right there he in it, right isn't he? There. I did not recognize him at first. When I saw him as the character, the spleen, and then went, wow, now I can't unsee it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this film was, was one that I didn't really remember very well. I had seen it on VHS. I must have been going back up to my old college to visit my girlfriend or something. So I'm pretty sure I watched this in, you know, in a dormitory with surrounded by a few college friends, but it was graduated by the time this movie came out. I guess that shows you how hazy the memory is. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I I remember enjoying it. And upon re-examining this film, you know, I I, I do want to say this. Like, if you have nostalgic feelings or if this is, you think this is an amazing film, I completely support everyone's own subjective interaction with the media that they enjoy. Keep plugging away at what you like. And I'm not going to ruin this movie for you. But I think what ruined this movie for me was this movie. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I just think that the pacing didn't work. I thought that there was, there were, there were a few things that I'm not, I'm not going to super not going to bash this film because there's plenty of insights and things to talk about that, that are positive. And I'll mention a couple of other things as we go along, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not here to bash this movie. And I think that the two of you may have enjoyed it more than I did and more than my family because they gave me a lot of crap after that. <laughs> after the <credits. laughs> well, I, I do enjoy it. Mm-hmm. But I can definitely see where its issues are. I mean, speaking as a visual effects artist, you open up with that shot of the uh, the city. I'm going, oh, that looks so bad. <laughs> <laughs> you see, get to the statue of Greg Kinnear. I'm like, 
Oh, no. No, that's bad. See, before we got to the shot of Greg Kinnear's statue, I actually thought there were a few moments that the pseudo-futuristic landscape it looked okay. Now, again, you've got to remember I'm looking at it through a professional vibe. That's fair. One so. thing I do want to mention, though, is, hey, it's 2020. I don't know how far in the future this is set or if we're at the, around the same time frame. Where are our Zeppelins? There needs to be a That's lot right. more Zeppelins in the sky right now. This was set in 2008. Uh, there was a piece of paper that shows the date of that. That is a 2008. The, the housing market hadn't crashed yet, so we have superheroes. I think it's great. So you're saying superheroes saved the housing market in this world? I think that is clearly what happened. It is I, Equity Man. <laughs> I'm the Toxic Lone Avenger. <laughs> I'm Dr. Reasonable Rates. Let's sit down and work on this. <laughs> I mean, this is the heroes that Gotham deserves. <laughs> yeah, speaking of B-list. Must fight the villainous yeah. subprime loner. <laughs> <laughs> I hope someone's writing this down because coming to stars. <laughs> the Market well, Avengers. I think that this does tap into one of the reasons of why this film. And that's because the things that we're tossing out, the things that are that rescue us from the things that feel like they're going to overwhelm us are kind of day-to-day challenges. I mean, we don't face supervillains. And there's something that's kind of endearing about this idea of the B-list heroes. They're funny. They're campy. They're unconventional. I mean, they're not your overpowered Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman the powers are low grade. They require training. They need personal development. They need team development to have efficacy. Um, I think that's one of the things that, that makes this a superhero arena worth exploring. And I'll, I'll say that I never really doubted the shoveler's ability to go up against Casanova Frankenstein, but I didn't see any way forward for him in his marriage. The thing that really threatened him and the thing that really threatened Mr. Furious was the everyday. You know, they can be superheroes. They're not very good at being superheroes, but it's something that they're using to escape the fact that they're not really very very good about living their regular lives either. Yeah. Yeah. But you were uh, talking about the the exploration of the B-list heroes. There was a a series that DC did right after one of their crisis events um, called 52, and they did a weekly book, 52 52 issues, in which Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman had stepped out of the limelight. They had stuff in their lives that was just overwhelming for them, and they weren't available. And so all of these other minor heroes came to the fore. You had lots of stories about Blue Beetle and uh, Booster Gold, uh, the question. Um, and I really, really enjoyed that series and getting this, this additional cast of, okay, these guys are all thrown into it to try and you know, defend the Earth, when Superman's not available. Yeah. Nobody knows where he is. And ask the question, how many superheroes does it take to fill in the void left by someone like Superman or Wonder Woman or Batman? Mm-hmm. I would I would love to see a, a TV series based on 52. Take a few cues from Mystery Men um, and uh, really take a look at what that looks like. Yeah, I think that there are plenty of, of cues to take here because there are there are some real problems that let's let's assume that we get to flash forward to the next day that the mystery men hit the streets again. 
they still have this this issue of work-life balance. They're not getting any corporate sponsorships. I don't care how many Casanova castles you blow up. These are not going to be the big leagues, and so they're going to be having to balance these things that are real human narratives, which I think would be would be an interesting and compelling story, especially if you're doing some long-form storytelling like a TV series. Mm-hmm. Okay, so do we want to talk a little bit about the origins and influences of Mystery Men? Uh, yeah, I think you did some uh, some research on that. I didn't bother. I just knew it was, I think it was a Dark Horse, right? Yeah, it was a Dark Horse creation originally. It was based on a Dark Horse creation, wasn't it? it yes and no. Uh, the Flaming Carrot was a comic book series that basically the Flaming Carrot was, was took the spotlight position that Captain Amazing had in the film. Gosh, I hadn't thought about and, the Flaming Carrot in literally decades. Yeah, and this, this is, is the first time it, I've heard the name. <laughs> Yeah, I'd never heard of it before. And I thought it was interesting because they said based on what series by such and such, but you never saw the name, you know, like you would expect, you know, Mystery Men or, you know, Batman, Superman. But it was just based on a comic book, which was kind of my experience. I'd never heard of Flaming Carrot. And he was replaced in Mystery Men by Captain Amazing just because Flaming Carrot was just too absurd to work on film. And we're talking about Mystery Men saying... Flaming Carrot was too absurd <laughs> to work on film. And there were only a couple of side issues that dealt with a support crew of lesser superheroes that also worked at the city in the city called the Mystery Men. And so the film took a few of those characters from the comic book, built on those concepts, put in some new characters, created some things, you know, whole cloth and went in some different directions. At the time that the film was made, Flaming Carrot did belong to Dark Horse, but it wasn't it wasn't originally a Dark Horse production. It was a small comic that sold to something bigger, that got funded by something bigger, that shut down, that wound up in, in Dark Horse's camp. Because, I mean, Dark Horse was huge in 99. Yeah. Right. And it doesn't surprise me that it was made by such a small kind of alternative property like the Flaming Carrot. I mean, the whole movie when you look at it, just kind of feels steeped in like this post-Gen X style anti-comic culturalism. Like it's not going to fit any mold. They're going to go out of their way to make it strange, to make it different, and to not fit any norm or parallel in anything else. Although not having read any of the Mystery Men or Flaming Carrot comics, I have no idea how much it compares to the source material. Yeah, I, I get the impression that it doesn't compare a lot to the source material because it was just based on based on a couple of side issues. And there was a Dark Horse comic run of Mystery Men based on the film shortly after the film came out, but that itself was also just a short run. I seem to remember seeing a couple of those issues on the shelf at some point. Did they stay there? Uh, the fact that I'm recalling them means that they must have been there for a while, so probably. They're still there for all this time. <laughs> They call up Prairie Dog and say, hey, is that issue of Mystery Men still on your shelf? Like, yeah, we've moved twice. It's still there. <laughs> we threw it away. It it came back. We burned the copies. The they appeared on the shelves. <laughs> it's like a Poe story. Was that Poe, the black cat? I think so. Is that the one where he gouges out the cat's eye? Uh, probably. It's been a long yeah, time since I, I read it. Well, when I was in junior high, the gouging out the eye really had an impact on my young psyche. So, you know, I get, at least that part stayed. <laughs> and listeners, you're welcome. You've got that too now. <laughs> All right. 
one of the things watching this film that I could not help get away from is that there are some uncanny parallels with My Hero Academia. And I can't find any sort of evidence that this was any sort of direct inspiration. It would surprise me if it was, but I also thought that it was just a little, uh, it was just too interesting that I couldn't pass this up. So I thought that I'd bring this in, especially because My Hero Academia is awesome and current and I get to talk about it again. Hooray. (laughs) I thought it was fascinating that we had one single symbol of peace and justice in the city, and that was Captain Amazing. And with him, with the limelight, lures seem to be suppressed. Like the fact that you had somebody who would show up and would take care of business was a big deterrent enough to make sure that only little kind of pathetic small-time villains would raid a senior citizen party and take their jewels and their arms and throw it into punch and so forth. False teeth, Um, false eye, all of it. I mean... Okay, I, I did kind of think it was funny that he stole the guy's glass eye. I mean, I, I'm going to give them props there. Like, <laughs> hand it over. Okay, that's good. Like, that, that can stay. And like All Might, having that image as the symbol of peace and justice resting on one person also becomes a liability. Because once he is incapacitated or captured or, in this case, killed, it has an emboldening impact on the villains. So whether, whether or not the city is more or less hampered in its ability to deal with crime, that's one thing. But the would-be villains come out of the woodwork once Captain Amazing is missing, and they fall under the helm of, of Casanova. Uh, I also thought it was interesting that corporate sponsorship was a part of both worlds, that we, we have this idea explored in both shows that sponsors – move forward to endorse professional heroes. In My Hero Academia, they're, they're doing commercials, so is Captain Amazing. Uh, it's an issue in Mystery Men when Captain Amazing loses his Pepsi sponsorship and just kind of rips the patch off of, his, uh, off of his suit because he's literally wearing these endorsements. And I thought that was, was – it was kind of funny because it looked, it looked like a NASCAR yeah. racer. Well, I and, think that's a uh... – Something that probably both of them may have lifted from uh, Booster Gold, whom I mentioned earlier. For those unfamiliar with this character, is a DC hero. He was a football star in the future and was injured and could no longer play football. And he got this notion that if I go back in time with all of my futuristic gizmos, I can be a superhero in the 20th century. And oh, my so he God. That, but he's, he's totally focused on the accolades, the, everybody's eyes on him because he's, he was a sports star where he came from. And so he's getting uh, sponsorships and he's frequently got corporate logos on his uniform. You know, speaking of interesting new superhero TV show ideas, let's take that to the next level where instead of sponsoring NASCAR, you get all these different companies sponsoring superhero suits. And it's like on the news. See the gang of bad guys. They're rampaging up 3rd Street. And oh, here comes the number 21 power suit sponsored by Napa. But close behind him is the number 25 <laughs> bought from Monster Energy drinking. No, Home Depot. Home Depot driving the number one power suit drops in from the top to steal the win and take out the bad guys. <laughs> I mean, it is interesting because we do see that there is some sort of capitalistic gain that's supporting superheroes, even in some of these other accepted narratives. In The Incredibles, we have Edna, who is a 
fashion designer and superhero clothing desire, both fashion and function. So, I mean, there is there is this capitalistic drive behind these these various narratives. And I think that's that's interesting and, and funny. And it comes from a question of, OK, well, you've got this guy running around in tights defending the city. How does he support himself? I mean, he can't have a job because you'd have to drop it at a moment's notice to go stop a bank robbery. And so that's right. a, kind of a natural answer to that question. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's funny because even the character that that is this Lance alter ego doesn't really need the money. He's a billionaire in his own right, but yet he's still relying on his his superhero gig to be self-supporting, which is kind of funny. So why use his money when he can use someone else's money? <laughs> right. Exactly. And there's a question, oh, yeah. though. You see the sponsorships on his suit. Does he have the powers, or does the suit give him powers? Is it a power suit a la Iron Man? Yeah, I think that's a wonderful thing that's that's fortunately never explained. Yeah. I mean, we we don't see anybody in this film who really is miraculous in their powers. I mean, we're coming to that a little bit later, I think. I mean, there's only only a couple that are really remarkable that have what we would call a powerful quirk. We're talking about Ballerina Man, right? <laughs> They really needed yeah. to give him a fair shot. I mean, really, ballerinas as they are. I mean, have you been to the ballet? Have you seen those dudes' legs? I'll bet you they could kick someone's arms off. Just no no question. Yeah. Not even a problem. Going point on crime. <laughs> Another parallel that I thought was really fascinating in, in this in My Hero Academia was an emphasis on non-lethal engagement. Like mm-hmm. they, they kept bringing it up like you need weapons you need guns and they're like whoa we don't shoot anybody we don't kill anybody yeah the blue raja wouldn't even use knives because they were too dangerous and uh, like the like the mystery men in the heroes in my hero academia have a very strict moral code where they will not use lethal means when apprehending their villains even as much as we as american viewers might think that the villains really deserve it mm-hmm that and also the the support of of tech kind of tying into the to the suit ideas there are clearly people like dr heller who are in the support class that mm-hmm. they aren't superheroes but they work to enable those superheroes to do their job and building the batman gadget one thing i want to bring up about dr heller besides the fact he's a non-lethal weapons designer chicken enthusiast he, <laughs> he's played fantastically by i don't know if it's tom waits or tom watts but uh, he has a very distinctive voice. And rumor has it that an interview he gave when he was just a young kind of beatnik musician influenced Heath Ledger's own voice in his portrayal of the Joker. Oh, that's True. interesting. It, it's never been confirmed. It's a myth, but apparently it's a myth with some legs. It's a very popular one. And if you ever, you know, if you ever look up on YouTube Tom Waits' interview... You'll find the one I'm talking about. You listen to his voice. The similarities are uncanny. Anyway, I just wanted to bring up that hero or or hero-villain connection, so to speak. Yeah, that is interesting. But as you were saying about their desires to deal with villains in situations non-lethally. Yeah, I think that the the support of of the tech heroes also come into play with that that non-lethal engagement because they're, they're both pretty aligned with the heroes, like the support class. Is designing things that are that are designed to be dangerous, mm-hmm. 
but not designed to kill as well. So I think that in both shows, that's interesting. Well, I found kind of interesting is that he referred to a tornado in a can as non-lethal. All three of us will be in Kansas <laughs> at one point. Tornadoes can get pretty darn lethal. Yeah. yeah that was uh, questionable. <laughs> I mean, clearly that wasn't an F5 in a can. <laughs> that's a, that's a question. Do they come? Do they come in gradients? Like, did, did he just throw an F one? And does like an F five come in like an oil drum? You just put that on, it onto a ballista on and launch it. it. Because the uh, the F class thing is based on how much damage it does, right? Yeah, it's true. You can't that's very classify true. a tornado until after it's passed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> release it out there in that amusement park. It's an F one. Release it in the middle of the city. It's an F five. Yeah. And honestly, by, by twirling around the spleen and causing an upset stomach and then dropping him down, shouldn't that have been like an F6 or an F7 when he hit? <laughs> but anyway, I digress. You're saying there's some synergy there between the spleen's power and the can tornado. Yes. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the film craft of this movie. Sounds good. <laughs> um, I thought it was yeah. interesting how there was a lot that happened. The pacing was a little strange, but... Somehow, there's a lot that happened, but it didn't feel rushed. There's a particular recent movie that I feel was rushed, The Rise of Skywalker, where it's like, oh my gosh, you're trying to cram too much into this. And yet I don't feel like as much happened in that movie as happened in this one without feeling that way. See, I kind of got the feeling, and again, this is the subjective interactions with film. I feel like not enough things happened, like... I mean, I saw certainly a lot of things happening, but a lot of them I probably would have cut to, to just quicken up the pace of the film. Mm-hmm. Right. There was an awful lot of it that wasn't very important, but it happened. Well, this is true. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that I might, you know, I didn't run the numbers, but I think I might have edited this movie down to about about 90 minutes, maybe 45 if I was feeling vindictive. Yeah, it clocked in at just over two hours. and <laughs> It definitely could have used a little bit of trimming. But, I mean, some of the things that I was I was thinking in terms of if you really want to pace the film and you know, feel free to disagree with me because this is, again, my subjective interaction, that we have Captain Amazing just sitting on ice for most of the movie. So he gets introduced. He comes in there. He lets the villain out. He goes to confront the villain. He's an idiot. He gets captured, and he stays there off screen, does nothing for an hour. We know he's there, and there was at one point in the movie, I'm like, is is he still around? Is he dead? And I'm like, no, no, he's captured. They're trying to rescue him. I'm like, okay, just I just want to check in. And then when they come back, then you know they kill him. Like I'm thinking, why not kill him in the first act? Like they have a failed infiltration, so that they go in, they try to set him free, they wind up killing him, and say, oh my gosh, okay, now we have no hero. Somebody has to step up and take the place. We need to we need to get better at this so we can take down Casanova because clearly he's not going to. I think that the location of that scene uh, in the, the scope of the whole movie, are you familiar with uh, the book Save the Cat? I am not. Me neither. This is a, uh, a film writing book by uh, Blake Snyder, and he has broken down Hollywood movies into a particular structure. And most movies... If you, if you watch them with this in mind, we'll manage to fit it. It's, it's just another take on the hero's journey, really. But one of the things that he points out is that there is a moment after the midpoint, but before the, the finale, where you've got this uh, all-is-lost moment, where 
something has happened and you think there is no way forward. We have lost our battle right here. And that's where the death of Captain Amazing falls. Um, you've got the midpoint moment, which is uh, Mr. Furious storming off, leaving the team. But then this is the, we think that this is the finale. We think this is the climax of the movie. We're going to rescue Captain Amazing. Everything's going to be fine. Oops. The false climax. And this yeah, happens, okay. you know, right at that moment. And then you've got the dark night of the soul where everybody is, okay, how do we move forward from this? And then we have a rousing speech that the shoveler pulls us all back together. And so it, it falls in the formula quite well. I think where it felt wrong to you was that that midpoint moment was really, really weak. Yeah. Where Mr. Furious leaving doesn't matter. You know, I mean, we I can see say, when he left though, that, that hit me right here. And what you can't see is I'm pointing like three feet to the left because I don't feel anything there. <laughs> exactly. Right. Like we know he doesn't have any powers. He doesn't have any role in the team other than to just, you know, drag everybody else down. Yeah. So him leaving is like, oh, good. We got rid of that guy. Well, I also didn't worry about it because I knew that he's going to come back. They're going to write right. him back. He's coming back. There's no question about it. So there's nothing to worry about. He's going to have a, a little pity party. He's going to have a moment that he's going to come back. Yeah. And that whole, that whole part, that's supposed to, supposed to be an impactful moment, and it really wasn't. And so you're feeling mm -hmm. like there's something supposed to be there, and it's just kind of hanging and flapping around. That would describe uh, Ben Stiller's performance, I would think, just kind of hanging and flapping around. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> but if you if you killed Captain Amazing in, in uh, Act 1, then it's a significantly different kind of movie. Because the Mystery Men's goal was, we've got to rescue the guy who's actually going to solve the problem. That's mm -hmm. their that's mm -hmm. their plan. That's the the plot of this movie as you see it at that point. You kill him in the that first act, and now it's a different kind of. We've got to become the people who can save the mm -hmm. the city. But these guys are never going to become that. There was one line in there, a couple lines I did like in that scene where they're all back at Heller's amusement park. They're trying to figure out what to do. There's William H. Macy's character, the shoveler, making an egg salad sandwich of all things, which just struck me as, okay, okay, sure, whatever. Um, he explains it, but I liked what he said. This is our fight, whether we like it or not. Just we few. We're not your classic superheroes. We're not the favorites. We're the other guys. We're the guys nobody ever bets on. And It was a good speech. It was sure. a good speech, showing a little bit of self-awareness there. And like we talked about before with the 52 idea, the hero's gone. It's us or nothing. It's time for us to step up. Well, and it's also, I think, a credit to Macy's performance. I mean, I think that at that point, he definitely carried the show. But his performance, I thought, was throughout the film was rock solid. Mm -hmm. He's mm -hmm. straight man in a complete in a complete farce. I mean, it, I don't say that, you know, as, as a criticism of the film, it's designed to be farcical of superhero powers. I mean, for crying out loud, somebody's superpower is farting at people. This is a farce. So <laughs> yeah. you have this person that has, that can infuse gravitas into his performance, despite how silly everything around him is. And so I think that Macy's presence in the film was definitely a credit. Agreed. Yeah. He's got a, a particular comic style that I really appreciate him and uh, Tommy Lee Jones. Oh, <clears throat> Where it doesn't have to be ridiculous, it doesn't have to be joke telling. It's all in the 
the tone of his voice and the, the delivery that just makes something hilarious. I think it was wonderfully dry. Yeah, there was a moment. It was immediately after Captain Amazing died. And I think I'm the only one in the theater who laughed out loud hard was Blue Raj just freaking out. He's like, oh, my God, we killed Captain Amazing. And you see the shoveler go, what do you mean we? I was over here. I was standing over here. <laughs> I died. I was the only one laughing in the theater. I'm like, why aren't y'all laughing? That was hilarious. <laughs> I think I mean, one of I... my favorite moments was at the the picnic where uh, Bowler and Mr. Furious are sniping at each other. And as the ca- the camera just pans across him, he's got this smirk on his face. <laughs> um. yeah. Well, I mean, if we're going to go there about the bowler, I mean, Garofalo was was also one of the best performances that we had in this film. Yeah. And she had just mm-hmm. some rock solid deliveries that were just great laugh moments. They're like, I'm going back to graduate school. That was the arrangement. Yeah. Like that was <laughs> she had history and has something hanging on this and suddenly we are we are invited into that private moment in just the most wonderful way am i led to believe that you put your father's skull in a bowling ball no of course not guy at the pro shop did guy at the pro shop (laughs) (laughs) yeah i like the way that she could deliver her her performance and it wasn't stylized i really Mm -hmm. believed her as a person more than even macy yeah this is one of the problems when you bring stand-up comics onto the screen. Stand-up comics, and as much as I, I have to say that I have a profound amount of respect for the amount of work that stand-up comics can do, and they do that work because they hone a character. Their stage performance is a character, and they build that persona painstakingly to get up for an hour and make people laugh which is a whole lot harder than making people laugh in your, your casual interactions. So they spend their careers building this character, and then you come onto a movie set, and your entire acting career is this character. And so this is why so many stand-up comics wind up being the same no matter what film you put them in, is because they, they have honed that so much. They have not trained in diversity they're trained in what makes their comic style work. Now, I think that Garofalo is somewhat different because she is able to slide into some other roles and perform wonderfully. I, I thought that she was great in Titan AE, a problematic film. Wow, I, I forgot that was her. <laughs> what, was she one of the... Wow. Okay. She was one of the crew. She was that... Gosh, her name's going to slip my mind, but she's the weird-legged thing with the, with the bad temper who's an excellent tech. Mm-hmm. I'd forgotten about that. Same. Well, then again, it's been, I don't know how long since I've seen that movie. So I think that that's why her performance seems to, to be a cut above some of the other comics is because the comics are being the comics that they've been all their careers. And she's, she's trying to be the bowler and doing a, a, a better job than her castmate. Honestly, I thought that her style and her tone, how she talked to the bowling ball, she did a better job talking to it than some other you know, live characters talk to each other. Mm-hmm. Like you could completely buy that she hears a voice from the bowling ball, one hundred percent. I'd like to see her yeah. talking to a um, CG raccoon at some point. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet you she could do it. Now, I think this also kind of brings me to one of the criticisms that I have of the film. If we're going to talk about film craft, I think this is an important thing to throw a spotlight on. 
we have a lot of comic tension in this film. And I don't know all the details behind it, but I, I have this in my notes. Like We've got all these different types of humor that are competing for our attention. We have this making fun of superhero tropes where Lance couldn't possibly be Captain Amazing. Okay, that's funny. We have, in the next moment, though, Ben Stiller hitting his testicles on a motorcycle. We have Paul Rubin getting humped by a skunk. And for crying out loud, they throw in a PMS joke. Yeah. And these are very different styles of humor. And what I found out is that there was a lot of tension on the set of this film, trying to decide what sort of comedic style that they were going to infuse into these scenes. And I think, this is my speculation, that you had so much star power in these big names they were all at their primes, and they do have different comedic style, and they're trying to vie for what's on set rather than have something that was pounded out in the script and then casting people who were good for that script. And right, they didn't decide them... on the tone before they started. Right, right. And it, which is fundamentally ironic with this film because it's all about how do we work together as a whole to prevail? And I think that as, as a production, they didn't. Now, did I laugh? Yes. Did I find it amusing? Yes. But I just found it a fundamental irony. Yeah, just throwing a lot of, uh, a lot of stars at it isn't going to uh, make the movie good if yeah, that's they're been not all on the same page with what kind of movie this is. Yeah, that's been shown time and time again in cinema. But it's also a lesson you need to continually learn, which is why I bring it up, is that we... We choose the movies that we see and say, oh, my gosh, it has so-and-so in it. It has so-and-so in it. I, I would watch anything with, okay, yeah, I would definitely watch anything with Ian McKellen in it. So, but, you know, that aside, I think it's this idea that I'm going to go see this movie for the star. And so they recruit for stars and don't always recruit for what's going to tell a good story. Any other points of film craft that we want to bring up? Um, I had one just on how the film looked stylistically in the sets and in the costume, there were several elements that reminded me of other comic book movies, specifically another Dark Horse comic adaptation, The Mask, and also prior Batman movies. <laughs> no, that is legitimately funny. That is legitimately funny. And that's because they did use some of the Batman sets in filming this movie. Really? Okay. <laughs> yes. It made me think because we've seen in prior Batman movies, especially the 90s ones and also in The Mask, it's they seem to think that the future is going to have a kind of weird neo-1950s-60s flair and how people, reporters and police officers dress in the cars they drive and in the weird gothic architecture. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I can do with seeing some of that weird gothic architecture in the real world. I think the future that we're living in is so sterile. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Uh, but then, you know, I, if you have that architecture, Brian, it's just going to encourage dudes to dress up in spandex, sit on top of skyscrapers, and brood. <laughs> they're not going to do anything. I'm they're okay not going to fight any crime. They're just going to stand up there and go, <sighs> That's fine by me. Have, that. have you seen the condos they put up down the street? I mean, for crying out loud. I mean, the architectural abomination is just begging us for arson. Yes, I'll take Bruder. <laughs> and they might keep the pigeons away. So, I mean, win-win. <laughs> I mean, an architectural style known as brutalism. Who thought that was a good idea? 
<laughs> That's a fair point. So uh, what does this film give us that DC and Marvel aren't delivering? As much as I had criticisms of the film, I, I think that I think it brings something in its concept that's really underexplored. You get some glimpses of sidekick life in the tick. You get also in the tick, you get minor heroes who are vastly underpowered when it comes to comparison to the big players. But I kind of like the idea of seeing what minor heroes do in the shadow of Batman and Superman and, and Iron Man. I think we really do have more stories to tell in that vein. Mm -hmm. The notion of these heroes that you think can't win. I mean, they are so underprepared and underpowered in comparison to their enemies. And you look at something like Spider-Man, like Spider-Man's not going down. He's super strong. He's got the fighty sense, the agility. He's got so much going for him that you always believe no matter what he's up against, Spidey can win. Mm -hmm. The shoveler, he's got a shovel. He shovels well. He shovels very well, but that's all he's got. Yeah. And one guy, he he picked up a city bus. Well, he, he pushed a city bus. Well, he had his hands on it. He the, the, dri the It was in drive. The driver had, the his, yeah, had his foot on the accelerator. Only at first, but yeah. And we rounded out with a limey fork flinger. I, you know, I'm going to defend the fork flinger as a good quirk. I mean, being a dead eye with small projectiles, that's... That's, I mean, granted, that's not Superman, but that's that's useful. I'll bet you if you set him upon that machine first, he could have gummed up the works badly enough that it would have it would have detonated on his own. And well, I, no, I, I don't think so because you forget he did not bring his large pie server. There you go. Yeah, I guess they had to hang a lantern on that, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> but we do have a hard time figuring out how these characters fit. I mean, thanks to DC and Marvel, we have so many character archetypes. And most of the ones we encounter in Mystery Men don't easily fit into any of them. I mean, it's really like yeah. what would if you or I put on a funny costume and tried our hand at hero work? I mean, we see people <laughs> actually doing that right now in this day and age. There's no big evil to fight, but they're out there putting on costumes, forming little groups and doing it anyway. But yeah, there's no evil to fight, but they still managed to break their leg doing it. <laughs> there's a story there, listeners. It'll be for another day. <laughs> I probably shouldn't tell it. Yeah, <laughs> probably not. But these are people, whatever powers they have, they're minor, they're minuscule. I mean, we talk about A-list and B-list and even C-list celebrities. A-list superheroes, Superman, Batman, Thor, Iron Man, Captain America. Where do the likes of the Shoveler, Mr. Furious, and the Blue Raja and the Spleen fit in? Are we all the way down at the bottom at, like, Z-list heroes, or do they even make the scale? Or I as Specifically, a, our, our main trio don't make the scale at all because they don't actually have powers. Mm -hmm. uh, now, everybody that they recruit does, yeah, which is interesting. Something I couldn't help but think about is, at the very end, they show Mr. Furious possibly for the first time gaining heightened strength from his anger. Because two seconds before, he was getting tore up by Casanova Frankenstein. And suddenly he's flipping Casanova Frankenstein around the room with his pinky, beating the tar out of him, kicking over a rail, and picking up a person and jumping from a second-story height and landing on his feet with no problem. That's true. That's uh, He did do some 
maybe superhuman stuff there right at the end. But mm-hmm. right up until that point, he had nothing. His weak sauce. <laughs> and honestly, the only thing that really spoke superhuman to me wasn't the beating him up, wasn't the kicking through the rail. I'm like, if a person's angry enough and just has reached that point of just make or break, they could do those things. But picking up another human being and jumping off of a second story height straight onto the ground on their feet, okay, now that's superhuman. He should be crum- yeah, he should so be crumpled up because dollar man fight yes he did it so yeah because in reality <laughs> his spine should be an accordion right now I yeah I said that while we were watching it's like and his lumbar were never the same mm-hmm. he should be broken she should have a broken hip because he should have dropped her so at that point okay that Movie. was superhuman. I think that the true hero of this film is the one who dedicates her victory to the supporters of local music and those who seek out independent film. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And also to the gentleman who wants to to make everyone remember the woman who works at the DMV. That's a hard job. What's funny is especially Garofalo's line was just used to use up film. Like they were done for the day. Like, okay, we've done everything we can. Just ad lib, do whatever you want. (laughs) We've got a few feet left. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she dropped that. Like, no, this isn't going in the film. That's funny. And who are you, sir? Uh, nobody. I'm just in a serious amount of pain. Would you guys leave me alone? <laughs> I thought his line there was pretty funny. Yeah. I thought his arc was interesting. As, as anemic as it was, going back to typical film structure, you've got this, this point where the A story and the B story are supposed to cross, and the love interest gives the hero the impetus to propel him into the final scenes give him the confidence that he needs. And they inverted that with him. He goes and he meets the love interest, whose name is never actually spoken in the film, I don't think. We only get Monica from her name tag. Right. And instead of giving him the confidence, uh, she actually undermines it accidentally. But he goes into the last scene with no confidence in his abilities. And then she flips into a fangirl at the end where he's actually learned his lesson. And she's, again, undermining the lesson that he's learned. Well, in her defense, every time she's seen him prior to this moment, he has been a super hot mess. Yeah. He has been the epitome of a poser, of a wannabe. And it's not until the very end, when her life is in danger, she sees that the world is about to end. And he, for the first time, comes through. He shows his true strength, his true potential, and she sees them as what he has always wanted to be. And that's mm-hmm. not just a poser, an actual hero. And yet he's had some personal growth where he can finally come to terms with who he actually is and not who he, this persona he has created for himself. And she's suddenly undermining that growth. Yeah. I just thought it was a really interesting flip to the way that that uh, structure usually goes. Yeah. Yeah, it's too bad that you couldn't have done that, I don't know, well. Um, because that would, yes, I would. think that if you, if you had interesting characters that were actually well emotionally grounded, that could be a fun arc to play with. Yes, missed potential. Well, speaking of the primary three, is there anything we want to say about the uh, the Blue Raja or uh, anything more on the Shoveler? Ah, Blue Raja was, there was some potential there. He had a, an arc that I saw what they were doing with it, but they leaned on a cliche of his mother instead of actually turning her into a character. He gets some balance in that relationship at the end, but you don't really feel it because she was not a person in this movie. Yeah, she's a caricature. Mm-hmm. The nosy, not understanding, uh, moo-moo-wearing mother figure. Right, and now that she understands who he is, his relationship with her can be even more creepy. 
Now she's going to want him to speak in a British accent at home all the time. Well, I do appreciate the fact that she's opening up the silverware drawers. I was saving this until you got married, and it's clear that's not going to happen. What's interesting, though, that even though she is a caricature and it is kind of a weird relationship, of the familial relationships that each of the three have, whether it's a cute girl at the diner or a wife, she's the only one who comes out at first as actually supportive. Yeah. He explains who he is, and her first response is, do you need more spoons? (laughs) Yeah. While the one who's supposed to have the most stable relationship with a wife and kids and supposedly a happy house life, she's telling him, goodbye. I'm not going to be here when you get back. Yeah, that was awkward. My first thought was, what, did one of the wannabes actually puke in the pool? (laughs) Right. Yeah, what was the tipping point for her? Because before, she was... She thought that his his hobby was a little pathetic, but she still loved him. Like, there wasn't anything that was damaging her household other than the fact that she was worried about him and the kids were worried. And she even said, you're a good husband. You're a great father. But that's all. But in the course of 45 minutes, apparently her and 45 minutes in like 24 hours, her opinion completely changes. I have a feeling there were some cut scenes there. And thank goodness they were. (laughs) Yeah, of of all three of them, he's the only one that really doesn't change through the movie. He's steadfast. He's the same person at the beginning as he is at the end. He doesn't let other people's opinions, other people's opinions sway what he thinks he ought to do. Yeah, and I'm thinking that all of these could be very compelling arcs if we had the time to draw them out with, I guess, if any one of these people was the main character. We would have time to settle in these journeys. Well, it sounds like this conversation is over, gentlemen. Yeah. Unless there's anything else to add, I think that'll wrap up our look at Mystery Men. And that will lead us to the zombie apocalypse plan of the week. Mike, how are we going to stay at home, practice social distancing, and survive the apocalypse? Clearly, what the strategy is to survive the apocalypse is a fortress entirely built of toilet paper, because I I really don't know what you're doing with all of those industrial quantities that you're cleaning out at the grocery store. (laughs) I mean, the zombies can just knock it over, people. It will not save you. And also, if you need a hundred and some of the odd rolls to, to survive these next couple of weeks, Really, you should have talked to the doctor long before you got COVID-19. <laughs> Public service announcement from Geek at Arms. Yeah, just save a little, let it all go around, share, and the zombies are going to kill you anyway. It That's doesn't right. it really matter. I'm thinking people are planning on using it as currency. There you go. Brian, Fallout was completely wrong. It's not bottle caps. It's toilet paper. See, this is, I, it's not toilet paper that I imagine in Boston. I thought that the thing that would make Boston go all Mad Max was not petrol, but coffee. And, you know, whatever was left of the <laughs> Starbucks, that, that's what's driving this whole plot. But I said I wasn't going to put in a COVID-19 joke, but I, I could it's, not. It's perfectly that. fine. I think if okay. anything, the last month has taught us is that if we can't handle this, there's no way that we can handle a zombie apocalypse. No way in the world. People are not going to be social distancing from the zombies either. What they're mm. going to be doing is like, oh, this is no big deal. I mean, it's just a cold. Ah, they're eating me because I mm. couldn't even stay 
six feet away from the rotting, shambling corpse. (laughs) Well, I think that's going to wrap us up for this episode. I want to thank you all for listening in. Make sure you check us out online at geekatarms.com, at facebook.com slash geekatarms. And, Mike, what's our Twitter handle? We are Arms Geek on Twitter. And we also want to encourage you, whether you download the podcast through Podbean or iTunes or Google, leave us a review. Let us know how we're doing. It lets us know uh, what you're thinking and also helps spread awareness of the show. And finally, from Brian, Mike, and James, we want to say be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at facebook.com forward slash geek at arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome. 